Let's jump back into the book of Esther. We started a new series last week called For Such a Time as This. And uh, we are going to continue that series. If you missed last week, you can uh, go listen to the whole message online. But I'm going to give you just a little brief recap of what's going on in the story of Esther and Mordecai. Um, so the king, who is King Xerxes at this time, throws a party for six months. And after that six-month party, he decides, you know what? Six months weren't enough. I'm going to have one more week of partying. So after drinking for a week straight, the king sends a message to his wife that he wants her to come and show off in front of all his buddies. The queen says no, and all the important leaders in the cabinet uh, to this great King Xerxes, they get together and they decide that if he allows his wife to say no to him that all the women in the kingdom will start saying no to their husbands. And so they make a big decree deposing her as queen that she's forbidden to be in the king's presence any longer. So after a few years, Xerxes is there. He's missing his wife and his buddies are thinking, listen, we maybe messed this one up. Um, so they come up with the brilliant idea of bringing all the pretty young women in the kingdom to the palace for the first season of The Bachelor. And so they have this big contest and they choose a new queen out of these women that are brought into the palace. And Esther, who's this orphan that has been adopted by her cousin Mordecai, um, who it, her family were, were Jews that had not gone back into Jerusalem when Cyrus allowed them to return. They were living secretly as Jews in Persia. And Esther was pretty. She was chosen to be part of this group. And she was immediately, she immediately had favor amongst the production team of The Bachelor. And she wins the contest and becomes queen. And so last week we ended with Mordecai sitting at the gate worrying about his adopted daughter. And when he overhears this plot to kill the king, he tells Esther... They saved the king's life. It's recorded in the official record that Mordecai saved the king. And that's where we left off this last week. Now this week we're going to introduce a new character. And I'm going to talk about what happens in chapter 3. And then we're going to actually read through all of chapter 4. And hopefully learn something from God's word today. Somebody say amen. All right. Uh, so uh, I will read the very first verse of Esther chapter 3. And it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus, and just to remind you, that is King Xerxes. Xerxes is his Greek name. Ahasuerus is his Persian name. Everybody has two names in this story. I don't, I don't know why, um, but um, just kind of connect the dots there. Um, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So we get introduced to the villain this week. Uh, and you know that he's a villain without reading anything about him because his name is Haman the Agagite. All right? I, I don't need context to know this guy is a bad guy. All right? Just based on his name alone. And so he becomes the king's right-hand man. He's promoted to this position of power. And as part of his role... Everyone acknowledges him by bowing down to him, paying homage to him at the direction of the king. And everyone does this except for our hero in this story, Mordecai. He refuses to acknowledge this guy, and Haman notices. 
Now, as a kid, I've heard this story many of times, and usually in the telling of this story, it's a little bit more black and white as to, like, Mordecai is the good guy, Haman is the bad guy, and Mordecai, the good guy, wouldn't bow down to Haman, the bad guy, because he's good and godly, and he would never do that. Can I take a little bit different approach on this one? I'm looking at this story and reading through it and thinking, you know what? Mordecai's being a little immature here and stubborn and, and frankly kind of dumb at this part in the story. And we talked about this last week, that the good guys in this story are not necessarily these perfect characters that live these godly lives. In fact, in a lot of ways, they demonstrated a lot of ungodliness up until this point in the story. And this, this entire book is a story of how God used them, but their character and their development happens over time. And so at this point in the story, um, bowing down to Haman, it wasn't like he was worshiping Haman as an idol or that he was honoring him as a god. It was a common gesture in Middle Eastern times at, to show honor or respect to someone in a position of authority. So Mordecai is saying, I don't like you, bro. <laughs> and, and, and I want everyone to know that I am disrespecting you. It was an act of protest. You can think of Mordecai in this instance as the Colin Kaepernick of this story at this point. All right. Now, I want to point something out. Mordecai is totally cool with sending his adopted daughter to the perverted king's harem for a one-night stand, but acknowledging Haman's position, that is a bridge too far. Okay, can, can we understand that, that these characters are not like these perfect Disney characters, okay? These are real people with real issues, and, and I'm not trying to beat this guy up, but, but even in the next chapter, we're going to see a change that happens in Mordecai's life of how God is working in his heart and how something is changing inside of him. And so Haman's servants who see that Mordecai is publicly protesting this new leadership role, that he won't acknowledge him. And so they ask him, listen, why won't you bow to Haman? Why won't you acknowledge him? And here's what he says. Now keep in mind that, that Mordecai and Esther have kept the fact that they're Jewish secret until this point. And he says, I'm not going to bow down to that guy because I'm a Jew. Okay. Two things. He's been living in secret for how many years now? And he just blurts it out at this moment. All right? And second, now we understand why he does not like Haman very much. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand who Haman was. Scripture describes him as an Agagite. That means that he was likely a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, if you remember the story of the Amalekites and Agag, um, he was the king that was defeated by King Saul, that um, they were captured, and that God told Saul to destroy all the Amalekites through the prophet Samuel. And he disobeyed God, and he spared King Agag. Now, I don't know if Haman was a descendant because Saul was disobedient at that time, but his lineage lived on. And now Haman is here, and he was a historical enemy of the Jews. And so it was Mordecai's dislike for his ethnicity at this point that was causing this reaction, not these deep spiritual convictions. 
right? You know, we see this all the time in our world today that, that Mordecai has been living his life without even acknowledging his heritage. And along comes a situation in which his prejudice against someone else um, who's put in this position of power. Now, he's a proud Jew. And he's letting the whole world know. Now, we would never do this as Christians, that, that we would use our beliefs as um, a, a, maybe a situation that, that we would bring that up in, for convenience sake, right? Like, we would never um, talk about our Christian principles being violated when it maybe affects something that we care about. Like, sometimes... We get upset about something that's going on in our world and we're like, listen, as a Christian, this deeply offends me and everybody around us saying, hey, you're a Christian, right? Like nobody would have known that until it was a convenient thing to bring up because you got offended by something else. Well, where do you go to church, man? I go to uh, the first church of Jesus assembly in some town. Like... <laughs> Your faith is completely irrelevant until you need it to be something. Now, I'm going to just apologize for getting a little bit worked up because this really bothers me. You know why it bothers me? It's because people take on this Christian identity because maybe it has something to do with their politics or their beliefs about a particular issue. And they use their personal crusade and they use the name of Christ to do it. And then when they act like donkeys, right? Then everybody else sees us in this position and they're like, see, Christians are the problem. Come on, man. He's like, he just, he just associated with our group just now and you're saying we're the problem, right? This bothers me deeply when people do this. Like our faith should be driving our values, not the other way around. We should know who we are in Christ, and we should be guided by principles in God's word. And that should be our identity. So Haman gets mad, of course, right? Because this guy has completely embarrassed him. And it says in, in scripture that he disdained to lay hands on just Mordecai alone. All right, now this is the point where Haman shows himself as the absolute villain in this story. Now I've said Mordecai has done some things wrong. He's being a knucklehead to this point, but Haman's reaction to this situation is so far over the top that it's clear that his heart is deeply evil. Because his response is, I'm not going to deal with just Mordecai who upset me. I'm going to kill his entire race. And I'm going to get the king to authorize it. This is how evil works. Right? Satan uses lies told in creative ways to make people believe something that is completely untrue. But if they see how it benefits them potentially then maybe they can rationalize it in their heart. So here's what Haman does. He goes to the king and he says, there's a certain group of people, they are disrespectful to you and don't obey any of your laws. Now, was, was Mordecai being disobedient to what the king commanded? Yeah, he was. But that was one guy disobeying one law. 
right? This was not true at all what he was telling the king. He was completely misrepresenting these people to the king. And so here's, here's what he does. He says, let's get rid of them. Let's wipe them out. Let's kill them all. Massive genocide. And here's what we'll do. I'll kill them and take all their stuff, plunder all their wealth, and then I'll give you a portion of that. And we can split it. So I become rich, you become richer, right? We get rid of these people who are a problem anyway. And the king is looking at that situation and thinking, yeah, you know what? That's probably a pretty good idea. I'm going to sign it into law. This king is so reckless. Like, I mean, first of all, his wife, like, like says no to him and he creates a law. Now here's this guy, Haman. Hey, these people are really disrespectful to you and your rules. And listen, we can make a lot of money. Let's sign it into law. Let's kill millions of people as a result of this command. So King Xerxes, who we've already decided is a loser and a knucklehead, signs this decree that all this is to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. So that in our calendar, that's the month of March. Now we're going to get into chapter four. And this is maybe my favorite chapter in the entire book. All right. This is the kind of pivotal point in our story where our main four characters kind of diverge. Right. Up until this point, they've all been kind of dumb. Right? But something happens inside of Mordecai and Esther at this point. This is the turning point in their life where they start to see God's plan for their life, where they start to fulfill that moment. And even though it doesn't explicitly say that, I believe that's what's happening in this story. You can make your own assumptions. All right. Um, so here's our four characters. Xerxes being the worst, he kind of stays where he's at. Like you can't get any worse than the loser that he already is. And then you have Haman who starts kind of as a bad guy and gets worse, progressively worse throughout the story. Maybe he actually surpasses Xerxes at some point. And then you have Mordecai who's done a lot of dumb stuff to this point. He has a moment with God in this. And, and I'll point out why I believe that. And then Esther, who's kind of been neutral to this point, who hasn't necessarily done anything good or terrible to this point, um, she finds her voice and she finds something inside of her. Um, and I believe that, that it's the Lord working in her life. So let's pick it up in chapter four, verse one. If you want to follow along, Here's what it says. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one who was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now, I don't know, actually know what sackcloth looked like, but I just picture like a big burlap sack with the arms cut out. I think, I think that's the perfect imagery for me. Um, you, you can imagine it however you want. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is the moment where Mordecai starts to do something right. Now, I'll tell you right now, the difference between people who go down the path of evil and the difference between people who go down the path of godly is repentance, right? It's the same thing today with us as believers. 
God finds us. He gives us his amazing grace. He shows us the plan of salvation. He, he gives us hope. And if we repent of our sins, then our life becomes something that can be meaningful. It serves a purpose. It has value. And without that repentance, our hearts are subject to evil and Satan can use us however he chooses. So Mordecai is doing something right. Now, he realized that his arrogance in this moment, his stubbornness has essentially produced a death sentence for what some scholars would estimate to be as many as 18 million Jews. Think about that. That would be triple the amount killed by Hitler. Now, doesn't explicitly say this, but what I believe that, that Mordecai is doing here is an act of repentance, right? He's grieving, he's lamenting, he's mourning. He's been rejecting his heritage and his faith for his entire life up to this point. And now that he's been exposed, something has to change inside of him. It doesn't mention that he turned to God, but what he did indicates a change in his heart. It says that he fasted, that he wept, that he lamented, that he lay in sackcloth and ashes. These are the actions of a contrite heart. They're the actions of someone who is broken, someone who believes that there is a God who can intervene. He's saying, I, I don't know what to do at this point. I don't have a solution. I need to turn to someone who does. Why fast and weep and lament unless you believe that it will move the heart of God on your behalf? Okay, let's keep reading in, in verse 4. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he would take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. And Hathach went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Mordecai brings Esther in on this mess too. He tells her everything and he asks her for help. Mordecai has changed at this point. Something has happened inside of him. But because, uh, it, 
it maybe maybe because of of everything that's gone on in his life but Esther isn't quite there yet right you see some resistance from her she tells her cousin listen here's the deal if i approach the king without being summoned i'm risking my life now apparently the king had a strategy for not being bothered by people right <laughs> At some point, he must have killed a few people for, for asking him a question. He had a policy. If you approached him, he might extend his scepter to you. And if you did, you were good. If not, you died. Seems reasonable, right? Here's the benefit. Nobody came to the king to ask him for anything anymore, right? Door-to-door -door salesman, completely gone. <laughs> Nobody stopped by the palace any longer. It's a brilliant strategy. And Esther, again, kind of shows her immaturity here in this moment. Now, think about this. I, I'm, not like, I'm not saying that, that she was wrong for feeling this way. She's probably still a teenager at this point. She's probably feeling pretty intimidated by the circ circumstances that she's finding herself in. And carrying the weight of her people in this moment was probably an incredibly intimidating thing. So she says, listen, if I approach the king, I might die. Why should I risk my own neck? Is essentially what she's saying here. Verse 12 goes on to say, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for, for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There it is. There's the verse. Mordecai's response was designed to make a point. He's saying, I know you think you're living a good life now in the palace as queen, but if you don't do something about this Guess what? You're Jewish too. Some commentators actually think that Mordecai was threatening Esther here. They think he was saying, listen, if you don't help us out, I'm going to personally tell everybody that you're Jewish too. You need to do something here. I don't believe that's what he's doing here. I don't think that he would do that to his adopted daughter. I think what he's saying is this is urgent. This is life or death. And I love how he says it. He says, if you keep silent, I, I believe that we'll be saved through another way. But maybe, just maybe, you're in this position for a purpose. I think this is a moment where he's acknowledging God. I think he's saying, I think you're here for a reason. And I think God's going to save us either way, but, but maybe you're in this position for a purpose. In other words, listen, don't you want to be part of the story? I love how God invites us to be part of his story. It's not that he can't accomplish his way and his purpose without you, but he's invited you to be a part of it. I think that's pretty cool. I want to say yes. I want to be a part of this story. I want to serve my God because he's a good God and he's faithful. So here's how Esther responds. Esther's coming around now. Verse 15. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's found her sense of purpose. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Breakthrough. Right? Something connected in Esther's heart in that moment. Maybe it was that line that, hey, maybe you're here for such a time as this. Maybe that recognition of her place in history and her calling and what God had brought into her life triggered something inside of her in that moment that she was willing to say, hey, if I die, I die. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be bold. Two things I want us to think about as we wrap up this week's story. First is that growth is measured by progress, not perfection. Aren't you glad about that? (laughs) Man, I am. Listen, Esther and Mordecai are far from perfect. God is refining them and shaping them and using them, but they still have a lot wrong with them. They've both taken huge steps in this last chapter, huge steps forward in this story. Listen, don't forget to celebrate what God has done in your life because you still fall short of the standard of perfection. Think about how God has brought you along and where you've come from. Um, Remember we were studying Matthew uh, a few months ago and Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said that you should not kill, but I tell you that anyone who's hated his brother has already killed him in his heart. He said the same thing about adultery and lust. Like if, if you, you know that you're not supposed to commit adultery, but if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery with her. Now those are impossible standards, right? Every one of us would fall short of God's plan of perfection for our lives. So why does Jesus even say that? Like, is that just him being mean? Is he looking to pick on us because we're incapable of living up to the standard that he set before us? I believe it's because God wants us to recognize how much we need him. Listen, if you try to achieve God's standard of of perfection on your own, you try to achieve that, that goal that, listen, I'm going to live a sinless life. You are going to fall so miserably short every single time. It will leave you with one choice. Oh my goodness, God, I need you. Whew. Like this is impossible. There's nothing that I can do to live up. In fact, scripture even says, like, be perfect as I'm perfect. Well, there's only one way we do that. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's His standard that covers us. It's Christ's perfection that gives us standing with the Father. If it were up to your ability to be righteous, you would fall short every single time. But the good news is that as we grow closer to God, 
as we progress, that that is something to celebrate, that his work of refining in us is a continual process. And now we can look back at our lives and we can see, okay, God, I'm not there yet, but you brought me a long ways. And here's the deal. Some of you have started on different positions. Like if you think about this like a football field, some of you were born coffin corner punt on the one yard line. And that's your position, your starting position in life. And now you've made it to the 50 yard line. And it's like, listen, that's, that's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice in. That's progress. And, and here's the cool part. Because of what God has done in your life, now, maybe your kids get to start from a different yard line. That's pretty cool. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to celebrate. That God's work in you is not completed, but he's done a lot as you look back on your life. Here's the second thing I want us to be aware of. In order to see progress... Sometimes we need to willfully take steps in the right direction. This is the point of this series. I want us to be fully aware that we were placed on this earth to serve a purpose. That you were not mistakenly dropped in the Delano community that you just happened to fall out of the sky and here you are. No, God wanted you here for a reason. And the people that surround you should be impacted by your life. Because God placed you here. Listen, we have an opportunity every single day of our lives we have been planted where we are for such a time as this. You know, early on in the year, we, we do something at the beginning of every year. During our week of prayer and fasting, we ask the Lord to give us names of people that we're praying for. And, and what we do is we write those names down and, and we find people to partner with us and pray and the goal is that we pray th for those people throughout the year. People that don't know the Lord. Listen, each one of us have people in our lives that need to know Christ. So whether you did that at the beginning of the year or not, I'm going to challenge you to do something right now. Now, um, maybe you're a, like, write it down on a note type of person. So... Um, I, I thought about like printing out cards for everybody today that they could write on. Listen, I don't use like paper anymore. And listen, grab your phone, okay? Pull up your notes app. Say, Holy Spirit, in this moment, I want to hear from you. Give me the name of somebody that needs to know you right now in this moment that I can pray for. And here's my challenge this week. And you're going to get a lot of challenges throughout this series. I'm, I'm just going to push you a little bit, all right? There's a little, little nudge. Every day this week, I want you to spend at least five minutes praying for the names on your list. Maybe it becomes 10 minutes. Maybe it becomes half an hour or an hour. Maybe you, you spend a day fasting and praying like Esther and, and Mordecai did. There are people in your life that need to know Christ. How much does it cost us to pray for somebody? 
It's nothing. I can waste five minutes like that. Let's spend five minutes in prayer for something that really matters. So if you don't, if you're like, uh, I want to write something physically down, grab one of the connect cards. Use it. It's great. Grab one of the offering envelopes, preferably not the one that you put your tithe in. Write down some names. Put it on the, the notes app on your phone. This is the challenge this week. I'm going to pray for each name every single day for seven straight days. Will you do that? I'm not convinced by that response. (laughs) Will you do it this week? Will you pray? Now, there's going to be more challenge, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let you know in advance. There's going to be another challenge next week, but this is where it starts. Do we believe in a big God who's able to do big things? If so, then let's ask him. Let's ask him. I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. I want you to pray for for your friends that this is the moment where we start, where we do this together. God has placed you here for such a time as this. He's placed these people in your life because they need to know Christ and, and you have the truth. So let's believe that he's speak to their hearts and that he's going to give us opportunities. And that when those opportunities come, that we're going to be obedient and we're going to be bold in our faith. We're going to share the truth, the hope that's within us. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for each name being written down. But I lift up the, the, the people that you're placing on my heart right now for Greg and for Josh and for Carson, Lord God. But they need to know the truth. So Lord, I pray that, that you would begin to speak their heart in this moment. But that in some way you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, I know that you can reach them in any way. There are so many different ways that that you can move. But Lord, I'm asking that you would use me. Like Isaiah said, here am I, send me, God. Lord, open those doors and give me the boldness to walk through them. I believe that you put me in their life for a reason. Give me the confidence. 
and the courage to be obedient. In Jesus' name.